is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. My wife, Melinda, and I live in a small town near Dayton, Ohio. She grew up in Chicago and moved here six years ago, just before we got married. She was born and raised in the south suburbs, went to school downtown, got her first job in the shadow of the Hancock building. I'd spent most of my life living in small towns and farmhouses. When I was a child, my dad was a traveling preacher in search of a church, and we crisscrossed the eastern half of the country in a camper van the color of government cheese before finally settling in western Ohio when I was eight years old. When my wife moved here, we knew we'd had different cultural experiences. What we didn't realize was that those experiences fundamentally affected how we tasted our favorite beverage, craft beer. In 2014, we were sitting in Bruchbergi, the Little Bruges Bear, a legendary beer bar in Bruges, Belgium. It was our first international trip together, just a month before we'd take my young daughter out of school on a rain-soaked afternoon and get married in front of a kindly old judge at the courthouse. This storied bar was our first stop in this beautiful medieval city of cobblestone streets and buildings nearly a millennium old. The beers we were tasting that first night were ones we could have gotten back home in the Midwest, but they tasted just a little bit better in this historic bar in their homeland. We were working through bottles of Oud Goose, a complex sour style that's been brewed around Brussels for a couple hundred years. One of those beers was Hirardine Goose 1882, Black Label. Browery Hirardin was founded on a farm outside Brussels in 1882, and their black label Oud Goose is one of my favorites of this eccentric style. The curious methods of inoculation and resulting fermentation used in the production of Goose, which we'll discuss more another time, and the extended period of time it spends in oak barrels before being blended and bottled leads to a dazzlingly complex flavor profile. And I find the more complex a flavor profile becomes, the more our own descriptions serve as something of a map of our own palates and our own past sensory experiences. That sensory map in my own head led me to images and words from my childhood growing up in the rural Midwest. Notes of fall jonagold apple and sweet hay danced over the initially quiet but assertive underlying funk. Over time, faint cedar wet stone, even diesel, emerged, and the image that began to take shape was one of high grass fields at the cusp of autumn, the September sun and the leaves of unkempt apple trees, a low rock wall separating orchard from pasture. Faintly, on the light breeze, the smells of the farm drifted in, animal, barn, exhaust, sweet, warm hay, but they were comforting in their place, not offensive. The beer is dry, sour, weird. It's perfect. 
As my wife and I sat in the back room of this bar tasting through goose, we realized something interesting. While both of us loved these sour, complex beers, the vocabulary we had available for describing them was very different. Each of us has a personal sensory vocabulary of aromas and flavors we can identify. We tend to think of those familiarities as universal, but they definitely aren't. And the wide range of aromas and flavors available in the world of beer, and as we'll see later in this episode, in bean-to-bar chocolate, are a wonderful way to illustrate this. This isn't, strictly speaking, a show for beer or chocolate tasting reviews or production processes or ingredients or travel or history, though we'll touch on each of those. It's about what's below the surface with each, about the stories that shape how we talk about our favorite indulgences. Our senses interact with so many other aspects of who we are as people. Bean to Bar Stool is about the deeper experiences of tasting craft beer and bean to bar chocolate and what those experiences can tell us about ourselves. So as my wife and I were sitting in this Belgian bar drinking these sour, funky, weird beers, I was using all this descriptive language for them that was very rural and agrarian, though I wasn't thinking about it in that way at the time. So if you think back to that description of the beer that I gave in the opening, you know, the the farm scene with the the field and the apple orchard and then the smells of the, the barn and uh, animal smells and things like that drifting in, those were all descriptions that were just kind of part of the fabric of my sensory vocabulary going back to, uh, you know, to childhood, always having lived in rural areas. And if you, you know, go and read a description of a goose or uh, another related sour beer style, you're going to over and over hear terms like barnyard, horse blanket, hay. All of this language is obviously very rural very agrarian, very farm-based, but I wasn't thinking about it in that way at all as my wife and I were sitting and tasting these beers. This was just a, a universal language to me, but as I mentioned, Melinda grew up in Chicago. There's not a lot of hay being cut and baled in Chicago, and as I was using this descriptive vocabulary, she was just kind of staring at me with this blank look because she had never smelled a horse blanket. She had never smelled hay. And in the days and weeks and months following that, we kind of started to unpack the ways that our own descriptive vocabulary was very, very culturally informed. We never really thought about it before, how much of it was influenced by things like whether or not you grew up in a rural area or in an urban center. Uh, Geographically, where in the country did you grow up or where in the world did you grow up? cultural background, things like race, ethnicity, religion, even to an extent socioeconomic background, all of those things influence the smells and flavors that we were exposed to growing up and throughout our lives. Earlier this year, I was listening to another beer podcast, Breaking Brews by Jason Sircone, 
and he was interviewing Master Cicerone Brian Reed. And Brian brought up uh, specifically the term horse blanket and questioned, you know, how many people in craft beer, especially those living in cities, know what a horse blanket smells like? So I reached out to Brian, and we had a conversation about terms like horse blanket and other words that many of us might think are universal, but clearly are anything but. Yeah, yeah, I, that that's like the one example that comes to mind for me right away is like the horse blanket thing, because that is so ubiquitous. Everyone says horse blanket, everyone says, even if you get a little bit more into like specific ones, like, um, or, or, or kind of you know, not to say horse blanket isn't specific, but ones that are less broadly used, things like uh, gerbil cage, you know, or hamster cage, uh, or, or something like that, uh, or even something as as what you would think to be as ubiquitous, something like um, like baby spit or baby vomit, you know, for like butyric acid. If you've that one never made sense to me until I had kids, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, there's there's a huge amount of um, of context around your your both personal and shared experiences that make it make it relevant. The, some other ones that come to mind are things like um, biscuity. You know, not not necessarily one that's associated with sour beers in particular, but oftentimes when people are talking about um, you know UK malt varieties and uh, things of that nature, they oftentimes use the term biscuity. And really, that descriptor is not <laughs> originated in you know a, a Western. Or I mean, rather an American understanding of biscuits, you know, as like a, a Southern biscuit you get with your, you know, two piece meals at Popeye's or something like that, right? It's more like, uh, you're talking about a cookie, you know, it's talking about some kind of like, su- like sweeter, you know, uh, uh, t- type of, you know, almost confection type of thing. Um, but I think that's lost on a lot of people. And I think a lot of people use things like biscuity um, as a descriptor when it's not they don't even necessarily make that that connection. They just use it because they think that that's supposed to be used to describe the malt character of British beers. Um, you know, there, one, another one comes to mind that I am um, that I'm guilty of using quite often, but especially when we talk about when we get into spontaneously fermented wild beers um, and, and oftentimes uh, Flanders style beers. Whenever you get that little hint of uh, acetic acid along with some like cidery, uh, f- overripe fruit type of thing, um, I always use the descriptor of orchard floor, that mm-hmm. idea of, so my, uh, uh, my grandfather had an apple tree in his yard that we would always climb all over and, you know, and pick apples and uh, scoop them up, you know, when they'd fall and take them to, uh, we have a cider press nearby. And that was just like a fond memory we always had. And that idea of like, that smell on like a hot day of partially rotting fruit, you know, kind of all around you um, is one that resonated with me. And I was always hesitant to use it. And when I started using it more readily in front of people, I was really surprised in the number of people that that made sense. Mm -hmm. I I didn't come up with this. I think a lot of, I don't know who did. Uh, I think I probably stole it from Jason Pratt, which a lot of my sensory stuff I feel from him. Um, He would always say this idea of like, you know, if I gave you a, um, you know, if I said the word strawberry right now, probably you have a room of a hundred people, 99 or a hundred of them immediately think of a strawberry, either a strawberry dessert or a fresh strawberry or strawberry jam or whatever. But it's very likely that, everyone there has some 
understanding or flavor ID in their brain around a strawberry. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you said lemongrass, you might drop to 40%. One thing I've uh, found interesting, I live in a small town. So when I'm leading beer education events and tastings around here, um, most of these, these aren't people who craft beer is generally marketed to, you know, there, yeah. we have a lot of rural folks who come and I've been really fascinated by the way that, uh, you know, I'll get these 70 year old farmers who are coming to a beer event for the first time and they're mm-hmm. tasting a mixed fermentation Saison and asking, is there hay in this? Or, you know, yeah. they'll, they'll instantly recognize these things. And it feels like with those beers specifically, this is something that people are attaining to. And mm-hmm. it really just comes down to, the the context of the individual life and what they've been exposed to, you know, there's, and it's, it's really increased ownership for these folks who wouldn't have it because when they're able to quickly identify those flavors in there, uh, suddenly they have a reason to care that they've kind of wondered, is this for me? Yeah. I mean, your confidence goes up as soon as someone who, who, you know, a teacher or, or a mentor, somebody who, who has some degree of, of, you know, yet to be attained knowledge identifies or acknowledges that, yeah, you're absolutely on the right track. That's the first thing I always say when I teach a, a class, because I, I would, um, I, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but I would say that I learn more teaching a class to, you know, beginner or, or novice tasters on average more often than I learn something like really memorable when I'm with, you know, fellow sensory folks because we all kind of speak the same language and there's like egos involved, whether or not everyone gets along really well or, or, you know, generally not a judgmental environment, but you're still kind of like, mm, should I say this? Cause you yeah. don't want, to, you know, there's, there's always a loud mouth that's, you know, uh, kind of leading about well, sometimes that's, that's me, but the, uh, <laughs> the most of the time, everyone's kind of a little bit more timid in that environment. But I think when there's no expectations um, for somebody, they are willing to, throw that out there like that's that's you know that's hay that smells exactly like hay yeah we'll be right back hey everyone getting a cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career but how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. The Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Bar Stool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. In early 2019, I had the opportunity to give a talk in Dayton at an event called Learn, Love, Eat, 
It was an all-day event that brought together experts in different food and drink fields uh, to talk about savoring the tasting experience. And I gave a talk around this idea of using beer as a way to explore the way our backgrounds influence our flavor vocabulary. Beer and chocolate are equal themes of this show, but I know a lot more about beer than I do about chocolate. Learn Love Eat was put on by a woman named London Coe, who was the person who introduced me to Bean to Bar Chocolate, and she's still the person that I go to first when I have a question about the tasting experience around chocolate. So I reached out to her to ask her if this same idea rings true in the world of chocolate and what some specific examples are when she's leading tasting events where she sees people um, maybe not necessarily recognizing particular flavors and aromas because of their background or recognizing them because of experiences they've had. You know, not everyone has had everything. So if you don't know what dried fruit tastes like, there is a certain taste or certain smell that is universal between dried apricots, um, dried plums or prunes, um, raisins. There's a certain kind of um, a sweet tannic quality to those things. If you've never had them, you don't understand when someone says, well, this smells like dried fruit, which is um, a flavor note that can pop up um, sometimes in Madagascar chocolate, um, sometimes in... um, a Nicaraguan chocolate, um, if you've never smelled or had tobacco. Um, I know that when I was in high school, I smoked for like a little bit, but really my um, high school experience with tobacco or my younger experience with tobacco was a smell of my father's pipe. So that kind of sweet smell, which you, I don't think most people would describe as sweet necessarily, but that sweet smell is or can be a, an actual taste to you. And so if you've never had a, um, if you've never had the smell of tobacco or smoked tobacco, you might not understand that flavor note. Um, a, another really great chocolate is um, the Arate, who is now closed. Um, they um, used to do a Fijian chocolate and that Fijian chocolate had notes of, I got char because I haven't had beef in a while. But when people ate it, they tasted, you know, like a just a, a charbroiled steak and mushroom. That those kind of flavor notes were very apparent in the chocolate. Um, so there are things that are very decided about a chocolate note that if you haven't had the experience, it might take you some language to capture what you're tasting. Um, if you don't know what honeysuckle is, if you've lived in a city all of your life and you've never smelled or even tasted honeysuckle, your experience is going to shadow how you not only taste the chocolate, but it will also shadow what you expect to taste when you taste the chocolate. You get a Peruvian chocolate, many Peruvian chocolates have a black walnut, which to some people can taste earthy and some people can taste very nutty. but sweet is not a word I would use to describe a Peruvian chocolate, even if it is a sweet chocolate. You know, even if it's a, a 50 or a 60% chocolate, if you are used to eating those kinds of chocolates and you've never had a walnut, for instance, and you get this chocolate, it can be very disruptive. 
it caused a lot of emotional dissonance because it is shattering your idea of chocolate. And so your experience in terms of your palate, um, in terms of your expectation, in terms of your nostalgia can really um, determine not only how you taste chocolate, but also what you think is appropriate for the chocolate you taste. So it's interesting that London mentions black walnuts there, uh, because that's a, a flavor that I've picked up in some beers. In fact, I've seen beers where black walnuts are actually used uh, as an ingredient. But there's another sensory aspect to black walnuts that comes up for me with some beers, and it further illustrates uh, what we're talking about with these personal sensory vocabularies. If you're not familiar, uh, black walnuts are a large nut tree that grows across the eastern United States. Uh, and toward the end of summer, when the nuts start to fall from the tree, the nutshells are wrapped in this thick, green, leathery skin. Uh, and the whole thing is a little larger than kind of between the size of like a golf ball and a tennis ball. Uh, and as kids, we would play with them. We'd use them as uh, sort of improvised baseballs to hit with a stick or as grenades to throw at each other. Uh, but if you break through that green leathery outer skin, there's this pungent smell. Uh, and if it gets on your hands, it, it can be hard to get back off of your skin. And uh, it's a difficult smell to describe. It's got this pungent green that has like pine and even a little bit of turpentine to it, uh, a little bit of grassiness. But then underneath that, there's this earthy like forest floor with a little bit of rot smell to it. It's very complex, very, very sharp. Uh, and pretty unforgettable if you've smelled it before. And you have to get through that leathery green outer skin and then through the shell in order to get to the nut meat, which is the only part that you actually use for, you know, for baking or brewing or whatever you're using it for. And the rest of it just gets discarded. There are some imperial stouts where I have picked up the smell of that outer skin and the, the earthiness just below it. With an imperial stout, you've got this intense, dark, roasted grain character. And in some of the heavily hopped examples, where you get the confluence of that roasted graininess uh, along with that sort of sharper, piney hop aroma, it brings to mind for me uh, that combination of that sharp green smell from the skin of the black walnut with that earthier, foresty smell just below it from the shell. A few years ago, I was leading a tasting class at our public library, and there was this old farmer, this this old man uh, in there, and we were tasting an imperial stout, and I could tell that he was puzzling over something that was kind of just at the edge of his mind that he couldn't put his finger on, that he was smelling or tasting with this beer. And at one point, I asked everyone, does anybody smell black walnut skins in here? And he just about shot out of his chair. He was so excited. That's what he was, that's what was on the edge of his mind that he hadn't been able to find the, the words for. It was an aroma that he was very, very familiar with, having spent his entire life in the rural Midwest. Whereas somebody from another area who might even have been a, a much more experienced taster than he was wouldn't have had that same familiarity. So my wife and I continued the conversation that we begun in Belgium uh, after that experience in the classroom, um, trying to figure out like what our areas of familiarity were and what our blank spots were within our own personal sensory vocabularies. Uh, for me, there were 
um, spices and ingredients from her family's Mexican culinary heritage that I didn't have much of a familiarity with, and she did. And uh, as I already mentioned, you know, some of those rural and agrarian smells I had a familiarity with that she did not. So we began to look at ways that we might be able to improve our vocabularies in a conscious way. So in the case of those rural and agricultural smells, for her, we decided to take a field trip to the Great Dark County Fair. Uh, the Great Dark County Fair is the annual county fair for our county here in Ohio. And like most counties across the Midwest, the county shuts down for like a week and a half every summer to celebrate the county fair. It's kind of the center of cultural life for the county every year. We usually go one night, eat way too much fried food, uh, and then stay away for the rest of it. But this particular year, uh, we went on a conscious sensory field trip to expand uh, some of her sensory vocabulary around these agrarian smells that she was not familiar with. So we went into the horse barn so she could smell an actual horse blanket. And we went into the animal barn so she could get a better sense for what we call barnyard uh, aroma. Uh, we went into the building where they were doing different um, agricultural and crop displays, stuck our noses in a bale of hay and uh, handled different raw grains so you could, she could smell like that that raw grain aroma. Uh, the tractor pulls were going on, so there was diesel in the air. And she was able to get a context for a lot of these aromas that she had heard me mention uh, that she had just never experienced before, never had the chance to connect to a particular uh, context. We have the ability to shape and expand our sensory vocabularies. These things aren't set in stone we, once we reach adulthood. I asked Brian and London uh, for any tools or exercises that they had for ways that we could consciously expand our vocabulary, and they offered some great advice. Here's Brian. You know, it's pretty easy to create a flavor ID in your head. And I think people get really intimidated around this idea of, of flavor vocabulary building because they think that, yeah, you have to be, you know, eating at, you know, Michelin star restaurants every night or anything like that. And that's absolutely not the case. It's just being um, not only a little bit experiment, experimental or, or a little adventurous in your eating or, or potentially even when you're at the grocery store, just being willing to have, you know, a cognitive experience around the things that you're, you're seeing and smelling and, and, and probably not tasting at the grocery store. But um, uh, I think that is the most valuable part of building a flavor ID because you don't have to have a guava seed or I mean a papaya seed or a guava or whatever other descriptor I, I said, you know, 10 or 20 times to create a flavor ID in your head, right? It's pretty memorable. Yeah. And especially desire can play into that so much when you're wanting to build vocabulary and you're doing yeah. that in an intentional way. Uh, your brain somehow assigns a, a, a higher priority tag to it and you can hold yeah. on. To it pretty That's quickly. a great way of putting it. I didn't think about that. But yeah, I mean, I always describe it as just being opening your mind to, to having a cognitive experience around what you're detecting from a flavor perspective. Like, you know, the, 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 biggest thing I always, I always tell people when I try to practice this myself is just being curious, um, especially in the grocery store. I mean, I get more um, inspiration kind of walking the aisles of, of like a well-stocked or not even particularly well-stocked grocery store. And no one's going to mind if you pick a leaf off of a particular herb that maybe you don't feel like you have a sensory, you know, uh, mm -hmm. 
a, a flavor ID around and, and pinch it between your fingers and smelling it, you know, or, or, you know, I'm not saying, you know, stick your thumb in fruit or something like that, but like sometimes scratching the, the surface of a, of, of, of a piece of citrus, you know, that you're not familiar with and giving it a smell can go a long way. Um, I, I do find myself lot. doing that at the plant nursery in the spring when I'm picking up stuff for the garden. There you go. Absolutely. With flowers, a hundred percent. That's, that's a great, great one you can do when you're, I mean, like I said, at a grocery, at a Home Depot, whatever, right? I asked London the same question and she provided some great answers. She also brought up cooking like Brian did and specifically referenced back to her memories of cooking with her father when she was a child. I would say be adventurous, not to sound like a cheerleader, but be adventurous um, because those adventures, which and they can be really simple adventures, can allow your palate to expand, but also can make you more sensitive. There's something that my father did with me when I was a child that I think makes me very um, kind of in my element. And that was when I was um, two or three years old, one of the ways that he would get me to be quiet was he would cook with me. Everything that he cooked, he would have me taste. Mm. So even if it was vanilla extract. So I'm not as good at discerning vanilla extract as I used to be in terms of Madagascar, Tunisian, um, Hawaiian, Ugandan. I mean, these are all vanilla extracts I use now, but um, Madagascar vanilla. But, um, but he would have me taste them. He'd have me taste different cinnamons, different paprikas, uh, which is also a very strange thing to taste on a flat tongue. Um, he would have me taste different beans and what different peppers were like. Um, and I did this until I was maybe six years old. And they um, encouraged, I think, my palate to be um, non-judgmental about things I was eating. So for instance, a really great exercise in tasting things is to make mashed potatoes, salt, butter, cream, etc. And then while you were eating it, try to discern the cream, try to discern the butter, try to discern the salt, try to discern the garlic, um, like pick those notes up so you're not just tasting mashed potatoes, but so that you are isolating these things, which when I use the word tantric, that's what I mean, is just slowing down, being very present in that space, having a very emotional connection to what's happening, and beyond that, being very attached to what you're doing. So if you can do that, that helps grow your palate for something like chocolate. So with all of this in mind, that our sensory vocabularies are so heavily influenced by cultural experiences and backgrounds that each of us have, it really informs conversations right now in the beer and chocolate world around diversity and inclusion. Our country is having a long overdue and important conversation about race and grappling with racism past and present. And there are ongoing discussions about immigration, gender, sexuality, other aspects of identity that can be used to include or exclude people. When we taste beer or chocolate or other artisan food or drink products with people with different backgrounds from ourselves, it exposes us to a sensory vocabulary that can expand our understanding, giving us a larger crayon box from which to describe flavor and aroma, 
and providing a point of common ground for us to come together and learn about ourselves and each other, our differences, and the things that we have in common. London, as usual, offered some great insight on this. Just the exposure of someone with a diverse experience challenges your experience as being a universal truth. So your experience, um, the moment you hear that someone else has a different experience um, and you can um, be in a safe space where you think that their experience is still acceptable, even though it is not your experience, we grow this notion of being, um, of disagreeing without being disagreeable. And sometimes that initial thought of disagreement dissolves and it becomes not necessarily acceptance and tolerance. That's the word I'm looking for. The, the concept can become tolerance. And then suddenly you do have this richer, oh, I love that, the analogy of the crayons. You do have a, a stronger, richer palette to color from. You do have more to choose from. And the other thing is I think that it makes you more curious about what else is out there, what other language is out there, what other flavor is out there. Oh, here's a great example. One of the things I talk about in the class um, is how things are used differently. So for instance, cinnamon in this country is usually used for sweets, right? It's used on cookies, it's used on cinnamon toast, it's used on French toast. But if you go to Morocco and some places in the Middle East, it's used on lamb, it's used in curries, it's mm -hmm. used in um, spicy things as, um, as a component of spice. Well, if you only have this experience of cinnamon toast as the way that you use cinnamon, how do you go to Morocco and have, you know, cinnamon spice lamb? Right. You don't even have the room for it. So having this kind of um, opportunity to be more diverse, where people can come to this kind of generic table where everyone is welcome and then they can spill out who they are, I think can help us as a, as a um, community of people glean really valuable things that we can grow into or glean things that help us express beyond just what our own experience is. So as I was mentioning in the introduction to this episode, tasting beer and chocolate is about so much more than just what's happening on our taste buds or in our noses. If we pay attention to our own descriptive vocabulary, it can help us understand a little better who we are and where we've been that has brought us to that point. I would encourage you as you're tasting beer or chocolate, try to be conscious of the descriptions you're using. Ask yourself how you acquired that descriptive vocabulary. When did you learn what those things smelled or tasted like? Be curious about new descriptions, maybe even consider a field trip to expand your vocabulary. Go to the county fair, go to the grocery store, go to uh, a plant nursery, go to a nature reserve, whatever it might be. But do that in a conscious way and try to acquire new sensory descriptions. And taste beer and chocolate with other people, people with different backgrounds from yourself, and try to learn from them. You can find out more about my guests in the show notes, Brian Reed and London Co. The music for this episode was performed by my friend Anna P.S. from her 2016 album Umbrella. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Bean to Barstool, and I'll see you back next time. Mm -hmm.